Hey, Julie. Hi, Jeremy. Can you believe it's our first episode? Oh, happy first day. This is so exciting. It's like the new day at school. I don't oh, know where my locker is. No, I have a new backpack. <laughs> yeah, and a trapper keeper. Anybody remember those? <laughs> Lisa Frank, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're millennials. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you want to introduce yourself for everybody? Sure, yeah. Uh, so, hey, guys. I'm Dr. Julie Bruni. I'm a sports medicine doctor at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. I live in Chicago. Um, I love my job. I like talking about medicine. Uh, I take care of athletes of all ages and all kinds. And uh, I'm so privileged to work with my dear friend, Jeremy. Why don't you tell me a little about yourself, Jeremy? Well, thanks. Yeah. So it's a pretty boring intro because I'm also a sports medicine physician at Midwest <laughs> Orthopedics of Rest in Chicago, and I'm also from Chicago. Copy. So hence why we ended up podcasting together. Um, but I think it would be fun to briefly tell everybody like where this came from. Why, why did we podcast? Why did we start doing this? Well, I think, you know, you and I, after work, would uh, be sitting and chatting about kind of like, you know, funny things that happened that day or interesting questions we got from patients or just, you know, kind of like shooting the breeze with each other. And I think it was your grand idea, Jeremy, right? That we should we should force other people to listen to it. I believe I remember it the same way. Yes. I do think we were sitting there and at one point I said, we should record this. And I think you looked yes. at me like, cool, let's keep talking. And then the next week I showed up and said, we're recording this and it's going to be called What the Health. And you were like, oh, okay, we're really doing this. Yes. We, yeah. Right. And then you took the reins and did all the really hard work and asked me to show up and giggle at things. Yes. So the, the good news is, is it has been super fun. We yeah. are really looking forward to having these weekly conversations with everybody. The mm -hmm. basic format here is we're going to try to bring important topics, things in medicine that or and healthcare or just your general health that people are asking and we're going to talk about them in fun approachable ways we're going to have awesome guests on that know mm -hmm. things way better than we do yeah, i think okay. we're both going to learn a hell of a lot we hope you guys learn a hell of a lot and then if you guys could reach out and communicate back some topics you want to hear about or feedback on how awesome or how shitty we really are, <laughs> that would be great because then we could either continue to be awesome or maybe improve and not be shitty anymore. Yes. Less shitty. Less shitty is the ultimate goal. <laughs> that actually is the podcast is more info, less shitty. <laughs> this is why we have an explicit rating, everybody. Yes. It doesn't get much more explicit than this, so don't worry. <laughs> We're earning it in the first three minutes of the introduction. <laughs> Good job. Totally. And getting us back on track, Julie. And in that vein, to hopefully make us a little bit less shitty, the way to get a hold of us is in the show notes. It has our website and our other social information, and that would help out a lot. What else would help out a lot would be to rate and review us and subscribe um, wherever you're listening, wherever you got our podcast to begin with, because it makes a huge difference and it'd be it would be really, really great. Yes, please. So, with that, Julie, should we start asking? Hey, what the hell? Jeremy, do you have a, uh, a chief complaint for me today? I have such a chief complaint today. Tell me about it, friend. Yeah. So this is a topic when we started the podcast that I knew we would do. And I'm so, I'm just like so jacked about it. I've been, I've been so excited about this one. Today's topic is stem cells and, and more specifically stem cells treating pain because I would imagine, Julie, that you're like me. We spend some time in the car. Every other billboard is either for hair growth restoration or for stem cells to make your pain go away. And I just see new ones pop up every single day. And I'm like, what are they advertising? What are they? I mean, I, I walk into a clinic and I have patients come in and ask me this stuff all the time. I want stem cells because I want to grow my cartilage back. And the person down the street says I could have it. And my cartilage is coming back. I'm never having that knee replacement. And I also want my insurance to cover it. Uh, so yeah, let's get that done. And 
after a deep exhale, I get started with <laughs> trying to go through everything. And why I love this topic is individually talking to patients about this is important, but it doesn't really get the message out in a way that really makes a difference, right? Public health is a much bigger way of trying to get knowledge out. And so we have these things at conferences, whatever, but that's just physicians. So what I hope for this podcast today is that we're going to have a real conversation about what the hell this stuff is, why it's being advertised, what really is going on. And maybe at the end of this, everybody will have a better understanding of why they're seeing billboards and maybe why they should or should not trust what's up there. So with that, we're definitely bringing on somebody I would consider a huge expert in this field. We have Dr. Jorge Chala. Jorge is a partner of ours at the Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. He's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in hip, knee, and shoulder pathology. He has a special clinical and research interest in minimally invasive treatments and biologic products. Specifically, he is a really good friend of the hosts and a bona fide badass when it comes to biologics, and he's here to discuss a very controversial topic. So without further ado, Jorge, come on on, man. Jeremy and Julie, it's <laughs> such a pleasure. I think we've discussed this topic offline and online so many times that this will become a really interesting um, you know, conversation. And I think hopefully we can provide some value to the to the listeners. Yeah, and um, potentially explain some of the hurdles that we see in clinic and how do we think we can move forward with this uh, field, which is challenging not only from a you know discovery perspective but also from the things that we already know. I, I do feel that the listeners are not getting the full Jorge Chala experience because they don't get to see his amazing PowerPoint uh, and uh, like presentation things that he it puts together. It's pretty badass. Um, however, we are going to get the, the the knowledge bank that that is Jorge when it comes to uh, stem cells and biologics. So I think what I want to start with Jorge is just maybe give us um, you know some background on you and kind of talk about how you got into this field and, and, and why it's an interest of yours. Well, I, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I was born in Argentina and, um, you know, came and did three fellowships here in the States. One of them, um, you know, the beginning was at the Stemman Clinic. There was this guy, Johnny Heward, that I think was uh, one of the NIH researchers that had done or had achieved most NIH grants in history, over, you know, 50 NIH grants, at least in sports medicine. And, uh, he really got me interested in, in a lot of these pathways and, and alternative treatments and, you know, potentially the future of biological treatments and how, you know, they can potentially be something that we should be using more in the future, but all the challenges, basically. And I think one of the main things that, that we saw is that when you do all these studies, more of the things that you're trying to understand is where not to go. So what are the things you shouldn't do? Because most of the times you're not going to hit a home run with any of these studies, but at least you, know, you can discover something that will take you one step forward, one step ahead, but also sometimes knowing where not to go and which are the paths that will not lead you to any success. And then my second fellowship was actually in LA. Um, one of my mentors, Bert Mandelbaum, is a big guy in biologics, and he was another person that actually incentivated, you know, was an incentive to try to understand a little bit more about this. But I would submit to you that the more that we study, the more that we publishing this, the more questions I have and the yeah. more confused I am. And, um, you know, it's very humbling to know that we think that we know some about biologics, but as soon as you start to get into the weeds of things, you really understand that we know very little about it. And we're potentially just at the tip of the iceberg for this. So my understanding is that, Jorge, you went to medical school and then you did your residency and then you chose to do not one, not two, but three fellowships. Do you just, um, for a long time, did you just like not like the idea of making any money? I, I found that very appealing. And um, <laughs> my my wife, as you can imagine, did too. <laughs> for the record, Jeremy and I have basic, barely one fellowship between the two of us. So, I mean, we're amongst greatness right now. So, you know, when you come from abroad, there's two paths to be able to practice here in the States. You have to have three years of ACGME accredited training. Mm -hmm. So you can either go back to residency and do spine and foot and ankle again, mm -hmm. among other things, and or do three sports medicine fellowships, which is what I did because I thought it was a no-brainer. Well, I really I'm... didn't want to see any more scoliosis in my life. Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad that 
those fellowships landed you uh, to be our partner because I, I really, you know, I think that you are a wealth of knowledge in our group and obviously for the um, for sports medicine throughout the country and specifically we're glad to have you here in Chicago. Um, and the uh, one of the uh, oldest first uh, year attendings. That <laughs> yeah, Jorge's only 12 and a half years old. So you are, <laughs> he's distinguished. So maybe give us some background, Jorge. You've really set the stage for us that, because for those listening, um, Jorge is one of the more published people in this area. He's doing a lot of this research and, and some of the people he's mentioned. So when you talk about the data that's out there and the things that we reference, he, he's very involved in all this. And it sounds like you're more confused than you were from the beginning. And it's not to say we don't know anything, but it certainly isn't sound like we have answers to anything at this point either. Why are there so many billboards advertising it? Why are so many people doing these sort of things I if we don't really know the answers? You know, facts that can explain that question. One is that it was very poorly regulated by FDA. So a lot of people were able to mount a clinic and start providing these treatments without a lot of control. The second one is like a relatively easy thing to do. It's much more difficult to do a, a, you know, a, a discectomy and or do a good labor repair. It's much easier to do an injection by somebody that is not trained in, in doing something else. So I think it's, it's a relatively ease uh, of the treatment itself. The third thing is that there's a, a hype and, and a potential you know, promise and a potential, you know, success that can happen with these therapies without having to have any major intervention. So I think for a lot of people, this is very, very appealing. And as, as you know, Jeremy and, and Julie, it's one of the longest conversations in clinic, you know, people mm -hmm. that, as you said before in the introduction, and I think it's, it's very important to continue to emphasize this, that is, is not one or two patients a month. There is a patient at least a day that comes to clinic and says, I've seen this billboard. I've seen this in the magazine. And then they sometimes bring the, the actual, mm -hmm. you know, advertisement that says, you know, you get this gel, you get this stem cells before x-ray, which shows bone and bone arthritis. And then after this treatment, you have all your, your joint space back, which is in my mind, absolutely crazy to see mainly here in the States where there's so much control for, a lot of things where you would think that, you know, that type of information should be regulated in any way, shape or form. So I think for those reasons, it's, it's very easy to just have a clinic that promotes things that may not be completely accurate, that has no science behind it. And, you know, there's one of the studies that uh, we're doing now and trying to look at misinformation. And when you look at these websites, there's a lot of these people that have, you know, they say, well, this is a very well published you know, um, doctor in the field. And when you look at them in PubMed or Medline, they have absolutely no studies published. Mm. So there's a lot of misinformation that is very easily trackable that is not being followed. And, you know, I think it's the ease of, of, of basically execution that they have to mount these clinics, what makes it so appealing to them. And the fact that it's a cash only market makes it a very interesting, you know, concept for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that last one's huge, right? Cash only. So, so these are not covered by insurance, generally speaking, right? So, there's people making quite a bit of money doing this, and unfortunately, people are putting trust into to, uh, you know professionals who have you know degrees at the end of their name. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's a business model. So, I, I love that you hit on that last piece. Well, I always worry about the placebo effect of something that costs a lot of money. You know, I think that there's a little bit of um, you know, internal bias, when you put up money for something, there may be a higher likelihood that you will buy into it and that it may, that may quote unquote work for you, especially when you're talking about really subjective outcomes, meaning like, how much better do I feel? I mean, I can feel better on a day-to-day -day basis based on how well I slept the day before or what I ate that morning, you know? So I think when you're talking about pain management, you know, pain is so is so subjective. And I think it is interesting. And I know Jeremy and Jorge, I think we, you and I have had this conversation too. I think when you when you ask somebody to pay a lot of money for something up front, would you agree that there may be a higher sort of pl possibility of pl even placebo effect or a kind of a buy-in bias um, to that, that kind of treatment? Like, what are your thoughts about that concept? I think you're spot on, Julie. I think 
you know, there's some things that happen in your life that make make a click in your brain. I had that moment. We were um, trying to create this Biologics Alliance three years ago. Biologics Alliance is a, a group of people from different uh, academic societies, basically, that was formed three years ago. The kickoff to that was a meeting that we had at Stanford with a bunch of really smart people. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, the, the people that organized the meeting invited three patients that had uh, stem cell treatment in Europe just to get their, you know, the thoughts and, and to see what their experience was and to see pretty much what they were thinking. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because these people that pay no less than $20,000 to travel overseas, get the stem cell wow. treatment, were telling us how incredible that was and how, you know, mind-blowing was to them to know that we in the States did not have all this data that these people had in Europe and that um, they just couldn't believe that we couldn't do these things here and knowing that there's so many benefits to this and how much, uh, you know, improvements you could see. And, and he showed them, you know, the x-rays, the before and after and how much the cartilage volume had increased and, and the, the quality of his knee. It was pretty mind-blowing to all of us. You know, you're talking about Scott Rodier from HSS, Manavon from uh, Cedars-Sinai, uh, Connie Chu from Stem, like all this heavy heaters in, in research in biologics. And we were listening to these people telling us like, you guys are pretty much idiots that can't figure this out. This has been, you know, long figured out overseas. And, uh, you know, it's, it's out there for people that are willing to, to travel. And when they were telling us the, the you know, the, the amount of, the, the price that they paid for the treatments and the flights and hotels and everything else, we were just mind blown because we know the literature. We, you know, we've read pretty much every single paper that comes out of any center mm -hmm. that, that is peer reviewed and uh, such literature does not exist. And it, it's, it was pretty interesting to see how that plays in their minds, Julie, to your point, it's it's crazy how much the placebo effects effect takes that person to think you know that that treatment was effective just for how much they paid or right. for all the things they've done they can't come back home after you know twenty thousand dollars and say it actually didn't work what what do you say to that anecdote right jorge so you have the anecdote there the person shows you their x-rays i assume that those were actually their x-rays or I, I don't know if that was confirmed, but like, so when somebody says I have a friend or, or this person sitting in front of you and says, it, you know, like, look, my x-rays got better. Like, how do you combat that? Right. Cause it, the strong, we, we like to think that data means everything to everybody and studies mean everything to everybody, but we know how powerful anecdotes are and how mm -hmm. important stories are to people. And so those stories actually resonate with people more. So what do we say to those stories? Cause that's what I think most people probably listening are thinking right now. It's very difficult. When somebody has something in their mind, for example, when they know that they want something to work, they'll make it work. If they know that it's not going to work, then it's not going to work. If they want surgery, they'll get surgery. There's nothing else that you can offer them that will make them change their mind if they're set on something. What I typically do with those, Jeremy, is I pull up data. So we written an article that basically shows, you know, we, we know that there's a lot of this biologic treatments that can improve symptoms. We know that they can improve pain, that they can improve function. But we know that most of them, or at least most of the studies have shown that there's no structural changes to this. So we decided to take a look at this and we looked at all the studies that have been published. They have reported on cartilage volume and cartilage thickness and quality of the cartilage. And we basically assessed the ones that, that actually said that they did actually something for that. So there, were, there was actually six studies, four, that, four of them that talked about you know, the increase in the volume of the cartilage and two of them that increased or improved the, the quality of the cartilage. And when you look at the bias assessment of those studies, you could see that they have a very, very high risk of bias, whether they had a, a very small amount of patients where one patient can tilt the, you know, the, 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 the scale towards being, you know, a, a, a something that improved the cartilage quality or not towards something that it didn't. Mm -hmm. So there's very small samples the way that they examined the, the cartilage was not very good and, and the scales were potentially not standardized. So a lot of heterogeneity and bias that if you look in, into detail, you really don't know um, if that is actually true or not. 
So what I usually tell patients is there's no data to support that there's any structural um, benefit to using this, these things. And, w- and what do you mean by these things, uh, Jorge? Like what's actually available? Like say, say I have a knee problem. I have knee arthritis and uh, my knee hurts all the time and it swells and it's stiff and I don't want to have surgery. Um, what, what's out there for me? What, if I came to you and said, Dr. Chala, my knee hurts and I don't want surgery. How can you help me? And I have some money. (laughs) There's several things, Julie. There's biologics per se, which, which we call the, you know, the gel injections or hyaluronic acid, platelet rich plasma, which is pretty much, uh, centrifuging your own blood and getting, uh, what's called the Buffy code, which has platelets, but also growth factors from yourself. There's very few progenitor cells. Um, there's a way to actually make that more uh, of a stem cell treatment with something that, um, you know, some people from the transplant world has been using for a while. It's called filogastrin. So that mm-hmm. basically takes some of the stem cells from your bone marrow uh, content and puts them out on the, on the blood. And then you can harvest some of the stem cells out of the blood. That is uh, peripheral blood uh, derived stem cells. The most commonly used is uh, bone marrow derived stem cells that can be taken from any bone marrow in the body. In the body. Most of uh, us will take it from a crest, either the anterior crest or the posterior crest, which is the, the pelvis. But you can also take it from the proximal tibia or the shin bone, from the you know, humerus, from pretty much any bone in the body. Um, there's another one that has been uh, more recently uh, you know, advocated for, which is a shoulder stem, I'm sorry, um, fat stem cells, which are basically taken uh, after a, a process of washing the fat and getting stem cells or centrifuging the fat. And finally... Um, and those well, are also, everything you talked about so far is coming from, like, would be, come from me, the patient. Like, you would harvest those things either from my peripheral blood or from my hip or from my fat. I don't have a lot of fat guys, so like it might be difficult. <laughs> so, and you would not choose that that route, Julie, because it would be very difficult to find. Yeah, I, I, it, it may be important to clarify here. How much fat can you take off of a person? <laughs> so, is this a double whammy? Do we get a do we get do we get stem cells and I get liposuction? Yeah, right. Yeah. You make this as a joke, Jeremy, but when I was in LA, this was a thing. Oh, wow. Right? You can get, um, you know, a liposuction at the same time. You can get stem cells to your skin, you know, get your wrinkles out. You know, if you have baldness or if you have arthritis, you can treat the whole, you know, the full shebang at the same time. And the billboards in, L- can- the billboards in LA have to be so much better than the billboards here. I know. No one ever ages out there. No one ever gets any older. Doesn't happen. They are pretty Come to the creative. Midwest to age, guys. They're pretty creative. Now, uh, to your point, Julie, there, there's one last one that people have used quite a lot, which is amniotic stem cells. And uh, those have the potential to be, you know, we know that stem cells age as well. Mm-hmm. So we know that stem cells are younger, for example, from fetal uh, products can be more powerful than uh, adult stem cells. But this is all theoretical. So mm-hmm. I was asked to give a talk at SSM, so I, I thought I would you know, get one of the samples and try to analyze in the lab. Because if you've ever been in the lab, you know that growing stem cells is not an easy task. Mm-hmm. They can get contaminated, they die. It's not easy to keep them alive. So I, I had a really hard time believing that there would be a lot of stem cells in a, a product that sits on the shelf and basically is readily available whenever you want to use it. Mm-hmm. So we asked a bunch of companies to send us some products to, to be able to analyze this, and we got zero products. So I can't tell you if this is actually true or not. There has been some studies that have shown that it's the, the progenitor cell um, yield that those things have is very minimal, if any. Have there been some reports of those things also being recalled? I feel like I've seen some things in the media where people, those aren't being, those the FDA is cracking down on those. They have been. Remember that... In the States, in order to be able to use these therapies, they need to be used for homologous use. That means that it should be used for the same purpose where they have, you know, been part of in the, in the body. I, unless, you know, and this was kind of like an interesting discussion at that Stanford meeting because Connie Chu actually said, if it's being used for homologous use and it's an amniotic fluid uh, derivative, 
only 50% of the population can use it, which is females, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have any fetal, um, you know, products in our bodies as males at any time point of our lives. Right. And uh, so it's only 50%. And for that, you know, you could argue that there's no way that you can um, say that there's any homologous use in the knee or in, in any joints or in, the, in any other tissues. So it's a, it, there's a very gray line. And I think FDA with the last update has come down to this with a, with a more clear uh, message that basically says and specifies a little bit more about these products and how they cannot be used you know, so uh, freely like it has mm -hmm. been used in the past. That kind of reminds me of how you were explaining um, the amniotic-derived stem cells, Jorge. It reminds me of when I was working with um, Dr. Tony Romeo, uh, one of our colleagues and the way he explained it, and this was a few years ago, but the way he explained it to a patient, I, I've always kind of kept with me. And, and he said, you know, to, to just use r a random batch of stem cells and then put it into someone's joint and then hope it becomes cartilage cells is sort of akin to putting, you know, flour and eggs and milk and butter into a bowl and hoping it becomes a cake and not doing anything else with it, you know? And so his, his explanation was, you know, you have to have very, very, very specific environments to create what you're trying to create. And I really thought that was an, an interesting analogy. And, and I've used it with patients to sort of, because I, I really think that this all becomes so cerebral and theoretical and research-based that it's hard to just explain why this does or doesn't work, you know, to folks, to regular people that don't have, you know, don't have extensive training in this type of research. And, and I think that that's what a lot of um, sort of for-profit stem cell kind of uh, providers are doing is to kind of like almost promote that kind of magical thinking of like, here's this miracle thing that's going to make you better. And, and it, and it's really hard. I mean, I'm sure you guys can, can have felt similarly and tell me, you know, please forgive me if you haven't, but like, it just seems like bad medicine and it seems like it's bad for patients and it's bad for <laughs> all of us. And, and it's, and it's, I, I very, I'm very clear with patients about, you know, what the research shows and that a lot of, a lot of that is, is exactly what it is. And it's just advertising and it's, and it's for profit. And that's, that's a very good point, Julie. So to that, we did a study on rabbits. This was the, potentially the most painful study I've ever done. 160 rabbits. Oh. We went to CSU, so we drove, uh, you know, from uh, Vail, Colorado to, to CSU every Friday to operate on 40 rabbits each Friday. And what we did is basically, you know, we created this hydrogel. It's a, it's a gel that basically becomes solid as soon as you put it in into the cartilage defect that you can actually make layers. Mm -hmm. So you can make it thicker and, and more solid, and then you can make it softer, more like cartilage. It's actually a pretty cool, you know, idea that basically gets solidified as soon as you put UV light on top of it. So from an engineering perspective, we thought, you know, this is a game changer because one of the issues that we had is how do we make the stem cells stay in the defect and not just like float around? So we said, okay, this is brilliant. We're going to load the hydrogel with stem cells and that's going to make perfect, beautiful cartilage. So it did in some, but in 30% of those, it actually made bone instead of cartilage. Oh, wow. Which, as you can imagine, is an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is what you were just saying is that the environment plays a, a huge role. So if you change the environment, let's say putting them in, into something such as an hydrogel or potentially just changing the vehicle, such as you know potentially adding PRP to this mix or gel, that can change the signaling of the cells so that they become something else that they should not become because the signaling is not the right one. Mm -hmm. The second issue is they, these are tumoral cells, right? They can continue to grow. Mm -hmm. how, we do not know how to tell them to stop. So there's a study that, that Johnny Hewer was conducting where he was actually trying to regenerate nerve by cutting the perineurum, removing some of the nerve and adding stem cells to see if the nerve will regenerate. And it actually showed that some of them did. But some of them with, you know, longer follow up, they show that they can create tumors because mm -hmm. they couldn't tell the cells to stop replicating. So that goes to say that there's, you know, a couple of things from, from the cell therapy uh, literature that we still don't understand. 
I think I love those stories, Jorge. Those are just really good. I What I really think that those highlight for people, just, wow. Okay, so I think the biggest complaint I get is it seems like clinicians don't buy this stuff. And so because of that, I think people are skeptical that we're not willing to be on the forefront and cutting edge. And I think what your examples there really demonstrate is that these probably have power. Like, I I think there's optimism here, right? But the goal is not to harm people. And so you really should not be doing these things willy nilly just because there may be something there. And so, you know, there's a lot of patients who will see me or I'll talk to and they'll say, don't you think that this could possibly regenerate? And the response is is nuanced. But in reality, the the answer is maybe. But I I certainly shouldn't be playing with you. Like we should right. be, we should be doing the things that Jorge just talked about to figure it out. And so you can fly to the Caribbean and get this random stuff done to you or find people who are doing it. But like, it's the same people who say, I don't want to be a guinea pig. And you're like, well, you kind of are, and you're paying for it. They're, you're, right. you're, you're paying to right. be the guinea pig. That's exactly right. And, you know, sometimes we don't know if the actual thing that we're injecting is the actual thing doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to say by that is, you know, there's another study where, um, by Johnny Heward as well, where we were trying to understand what was causing the effect. And um, we do think that, for example, the cells that live in the leaning of the joints, the synovium, have a very powerful you know, effect to, to injury in the knee. So we did is we, take, we took some mice and we took the leaning of the joint in half of them and we kept the leaning of the joint in the other half. And then we did cartilage defects. So basically just if you, if you can think about cartilage like the tile of a floor, just one of the tiles missing. Mm-hmm. And then we injected stem cells to see, which were marked, to see if those stem cells would go there and repair the defect. What we saw was that the cells that we injected that were marked were not the ones actually doing the repair. There's some of the cells from the synovium, which means that although the, the cell therapy may be effective, it may not be because they are actually doing the job, is because they're, they're maybe calling other cells from the body. So they have what we call a paracrine effect because they call their friends to be able to help them, you know, finish the job. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy that, that coined this, the, the term stem cell doesn't call them stem cells anymore. Mm. He called them, calls them signaling cells. And I think for, for that recent you know, thing that I just told you, it's probably a more correct word to define them because it may not be you know what we're trying to look for may not be just the cell that actually treats the problem mm-hmm. what we may be looking for is the messenger that calls the right people or the right cells you know quote unquote to be able to help us you know heal or you know um you know just fill out the defect of cartilage or, or heal the defect whatever we're, we're trying to do that kind of sounds to me more I mean, like when you said that, my mind immediately went to platelet-rich plasma. And that's sort of how I explain kind of how PRP works to patients saying, okay, well, this is your own blood that we spin it down and we take the middle portion of it that's filled with sort of your growth and healing factors. And it's, it in, in a sense acts as a homing beacon to the rest of your immune system to kind of rally the troops where you put it to promote healing. And like, that makes more sense to me, you know, and I think that's why, I mean, at least, in, you know, in, in our circles, platelet-rich plasma or PRP is utilized a lot more frequently. A, it's less expensive. B, you can get it from someone's regular blood, like with a blood draw that you would get if you were getting your cholesterol tested. Um, and the risk of harm to a patient is, I mean, would you agree, Jorge, pretty minimal, almost zero? Yeah. I mean, the risk of and, harm is that maybe it doesn't work. And C, there's way more evidence for platelet-rich right. plasma for sure. than there is for stem cells. So there's almost 23 or 24 randomized clinical trials now showing that PRP is better than the counterparts, where there's not too many of those in, in the stem cell world. Um, there's a, a bunch of you know K-series um, that, again, have a lot of bias that are inherent to that. There's a, a good randomized clinical trial now that it's, has been recently published by Adam Ants at, in Pensacola, basically showing that BMAC can be just as effective as PRP. So that what is, is BMAC? The, sorry, can you explain that to our listeners? I'm sorry, that's bone marrow aspirate, which is a concentration of bone marrow aspiration. 
So in that way, what you can do potentially is concentrate more stem cells or more progenitor cells. And that would come from the patient. Like that's the one that you would say you'd pull it out of someone's hip or pelvis bone, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's really the the word stem cell. I think is 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 such a problem, Mm -hmm. at least when it comes to to my experience here. And you already talked about it, Jorge. That 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 the the scientist who kind of coined that term kind of gives one talk at this point about how that term shouldn't exist anymore. But you know, the word stem cell is not free of its own baggage. People hear the word stem cell and they think regeneration and regrowth. And so, you know, if if that term wasn't used in this world, in which I think a lot of us try to call them biologics or we try to call it something else, mm-hmm. it just would take away a lot of its power. But the episode we're doing is called stem cells for a reason, because the billboard mm-hmm. on, on the highway doesn't say orthobiologics, come on in. I mean, it, it may say the word regenerative. That word gets a lot of pub these days, but but it's usually the word stem cells. And it's just, I think, kind of depower, taking the power away from that word and, and really helping people understand that that word itself has so much connotation that doesn't belong in our current orthopedic world, at least right, not right now, mm-hmm. is, is really what my mission is, is like, Stop using the word stem cells. And if you are using it, stop using it to say it's doing what you think a stem cell is doing. Because it's not right now. Mm-hmm. It's not. We don't know. We need to figure out more information on it. I think a lot of patients get um, get frustrated because, and I feel like some of the things that I hear, yeah, kind of in, in that vein, Jeremy, is like, well, why can't you just regrow the cartilage? Like, what's so damn hard about it? Why can't, why do I have to have a knee replacement? Why do I have to have a hip replacement? I mean, like you guys can, we can make a a COVID vaccine within a year and you can't grow cartilage. Like, I think it's a a little bit of a sort of mistrust of the scientific community and and the medical community, which, you know, we sort of deserve a little bit of that too, for, for, you know, for sure. But um, yeah, it is, you know, language is very powerful and, uh, and I, it is hard to explain to patients that uh, medicine is not that easy. (laughs) I have a conversation multiple times a day, you know, because it it is kind of disheartening to see how other areas of medicine evolve so fast, you know, robotics and other things that we can do now. And, you know, this certainly has not had the same uh, structure growth because I think there's multiple issues. You know, if they ask you, can you grow cartilage? The answer is yes, we can. There's pretty impressive studies and, and things and technology that has been developed by other you know, scientists um, there's one specifically, his name is Farshid Gilak. He's out of WashU and he has built this mesh uh, that you can put around, you know, bones and potentially build cartilage. So that technology is already available. It's just not ready for clinical use because of, you know, multiple reasons, including safety and longevity and, you know, really outcomes and, and the capacity to withstand load. So there is a lot of advancements that, that, have, that have been done. It's just a difficult thing to get into the market just yeah. because there's a lot of things that need to happen between development and, and execution. Are there things that are being done internationally in which the, you know, you had those patients come over and talk to you guys about how we just are idiots here and we can't figure it out and, <laughs> and there's there's smarter people everywhere else. Um, are there things that you're aware of that internationally are being done that, that seem promising or or maybe we're not doing here because we're a little slower on the process? Uh, I think there's more of the same, Jeremy. I think there's um, a, a lot of groups throughout the world that are working very diligently and, and with different technologies trying to understand, you know, multiple pathways for or avenues for, for, you know, improvement. But I think that at some point with biologics, we missed the mark. And when I'm, when I'm saying that, it's because I think we are trying to find a treatment for a condition that we don't understand very well. For example, if you're treating cartilage pathology, let's say that you have arthritis, what we don't know yet is what are we treating? Is that a degenerative disease? Is that a catabolic disease? Is that inflammatory uh, disease that we're treating? So we don't know exactly what, what is it that we're treating. And that is, for example, when you think about rheumatological conditions, you know, um, all these people are looking for a specific antibody that is causing the disease. So what I envision is that in 10, 15 years from now, we'll have something similar to 
a glucose test where we will be able to get a little bit of synovial fluid, putting in a, in a steri strip or, or something that will be able to give us some a color coded mm-hmm. type of um, you know information that says this is CTX2, which is a molecule that comes from cartilage when it's destroyed. Yeah. Right? So we know that we need to treat something that is causing the cartilage to be destroyed. Or maybe a lot of you know molecules that cause inflammation. So we don't need to treat this knee the same way that we treat somebody that has a degenerative disease. Right. So, so not that, all not correct. all arthritis is the same is what you're trying to say. Correct. And not all it's not all tendinosis or tendinitis. Mm-hmm. I think we need to really take a step back to try to understand what we're treating. And then I think once we know that we're going to be able to be, you know, more specific and more tailored and customized with our treatments as we move forward. I think that's what we need to happen first. And we've been trying to figure out, you know, if leukocyte, if the PRP needs to be leukocyte rich or poor, Mm -hmm. how much growth factors and all this stuff, but we really don't know what we're treating. One of the, I I think what I want to do, Julia, um, something fun that we could do with Jorge here is you and I get a ton of questions and I'm sure he does too in the clinic about Mm -hmm. these things. Maybe we can kind of like rapid fire as if we're the patients and see if we can get some of these questions answered from him and we can be his, uh, his, his, I, I'm, I read this in the newspaper and I really want to know more about it patient today. Um, so, you know, I think that the first question I would have, um, um, that I get all the time is, you know, why is this not covered by insurance? Why am I paying for this? I think there's uh, not a lot of evidence as of now that has long-standing results. Uh, insurance companies are not the most, um, you know, are not the companies that are most willing to make changes to be able to cover more things. It's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. So they will try not to cover for the most, you know, for the longest time that they can. There is significant evidence for some of these therapies, and I think they will be covered in the near future. It's just not as of now. How much is it going to cost me? How much, you know, on, if you had to like ballpark it, how much for a PRP injection? How much for a BMAC procedure? You know, those are kind of the more common ones. How much for the amniotic? Like, what, what do you think that's going to cost me in in the U.S. right now? I think it will depend on when do you get it done. It will be safer and potentially more economic in an, in an academic institution that has more control. I would say that PRP is more, more or less around... Seven hundred to one thousand dollars range per injection, and bomber aspirate can go all the way down from fifteen hundred to four thousand. Okay. Does it work? I mean, am I paying for this? Is it better than me getting a cortisone shot or getting these uh, these fancy gel injections I've heard about? So it depends on what you use. Um, cortisone injection is probably one of the most effective biologic treatments that we have. The only problem is that it's not durable. Uh, the mean duration of cortisone that has been reported, it's about two to four weeks. Now, HA or hyaluronic acid or the gel injection can be more long lasting. It can last for up to six months in, in mean duration. The problem with HA is that you need to treat 16 people to have one person that has a clinically meaningful outcome. So that is not very promising. Now, PRP has the same number, which is uh, one out of four. So it's much more effective than, than gel injections. And those can last for about nine months or so. That's the mean duration. If you ask me, and, and this is something that we discussed before, I think with you, Julie, where, you know, how to, uh, you know, take this conversation with patients. I say, if you ask me if I would have your same problem, I would have potentially arthritis or knee pain. If you ask me what's the most effective treatment that may last for longer, I would say a combination of PRP and HA. Is that what you would do, doctor, for your own knee? That's exactly what I would do for my knee. Yeah. Times three. And I think that's the way that I explain things to patients. It's like, this is what the choice that I would make for myself. And and I'm, I think that that resonates with people because it's like, what would you do? Like, you know, and, and I'm honest with people about what would I choose for myself? Uh, I think that's, that's a kind exactly, of a gold standard. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the way to do it, just because they can relate to you. And I usually don't offer this as a first line of treatment, just like you guys either, based on our conversations. I usually offer potentially a cortisone injection and physical therapy or anti-inflammatories. And if people don't get better, this becomes an option. It's very hard in my mind to talk about something that may be out of pocket. 
as a first line of treatment, having other choices that we can, you know, choose, you know, that may may not require any out of pocket, uh, you know, uh, expenses. What about adding it to surgery, Jorge? And you don't have to go through every specific surgery out there, but do you think that there's promise? I feel like it's being added multiple products, probably. I think there's some indications like uh, rotator cuff repairs in, in some of them, um, osteocon allografts where you can, or there's some evidence to suggest that the, their use may, you know, improve outcomes, but there's not a lot of evidence. There's absolutely no randomized clinical trials showing that adding this will aid in, in, in a beneficial outcome for the patient. That being said, for people that can pay for it and are looking to maximize their outcomes, if there's any way to even marginally, you know, improve their outcomes, I think it's a reasonable thing to do for the things that there's a little bit of evidence at least, but there's no clear cut evidence to suggest its use in any surgical procedure. Do you foresee, Jorge, that that at least PRP may be on the, the cusp of getting covered by insurance? It does seem like it has some superior outcomes and it's certainly less expensive than some of the, you know, other more invasive biologic treatment. What do you think? Absolutely. I think, you know, the first step is to have our societies back us up and support it with literature and clinical practice guidelines. We just finished that one for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And what we found was that actually PRP has shown consistently to be better than HA, ozone therapy and controls. So I think, you know, the recommendation was in favor of it and it can treat symptoms. So I think the more that we see this happen with multiple societies uh, and by people putting pressure on insurances, I think this will happen sooner rather than later, at least for PRP. Yeah, because we hate in medicine to exclude people from really good, meaningful therapies because of a paywall. You know, that's uh, it's, it's a huge problem in, in, I think, the American health healthcare society or um, the healthcare world. You know that uh, that there's really great treatments, but if you don't have the right insurance, or you don't have insurance, or you don't have disposable income to use on it, it's not available to you. So it is, you know, it can be really frustrating when you see really promising treatments that um, that are that may be prohibitively expensive to to some folks. And um, it is, it's it's really lovely to be working with people like you, Jorge, who are pushing towards. Um, sort of uncovering the potential of these treatments and helping them, you know, to, to, you know, cr- find the data to back it up so that, you know, we can move forward. Absolutely. Jorge, I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable situation. I'm going to ask you to, in a 30 seconds, sum up this whole episode, because it's been absolutely incredibly informative. <laughs> and what I want you to do is in a format of, I, I, you know, my, my uncle just read in the newspaper that they could have stem cell treatments to their knees and it's going to regrow cartilage and, and they're reaching out to you to be like, so what do you think? Like, what's your take home message for, for that? Everybody should, should take home with this thing. I've got that question several times, Jeremy. So I can tell you what I tell patients. I tell them there's no real science or data to support that statement. There's absolutely nothing out there that can say that any stem cell treatment will regenerate cartilage in any meaningful way. That being said, there's chances that symptoms may improve and symptoms mean pain and function. The most evidence that we have as of now is with platelet-rich plasma. There's not a lot of evidence for any other other, uh, biological treatments that we have available. If you ask me what I would use for my knee, it's probably a combination of gel in uh, PRP injections, if I had a cortisone injection that has that has failed because it was not durable, and most beautiful elevator pitch. Should I tell my patients? Yeah, so we're going to record that and we're just going to play it on repeat um, in, in, <laughs> in, in in the waiting rooms from from now on, which will help with all our intrusive waiting room thought conversations. As we'll just have Jorge saying that over and over again. <laughs> So most most importantly, so Jorge has uh, two beautiful young children and a lovely wife that 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 uh, um, we all know. Um, and Mother's Day just happened. So what did you get her for Mother's Day? <laughs> PRP. So, uh, <laughs> I, I got her three injections of PRP. Oh my goodness, he's just <laughs> the generosity. <laughs> we were actually invited to a, a meeting in Spain now in June. So um, nice. 
we'll go with her and uh, we'll take some, some a couple of days in, in Ibiza. So oh, that's my good. goodness. Oh, nice. Well, now I'm jealous. Yeah, right? Shoot. Me too. Me too, Jeremy. Yeah, what did, I yeah. Do? what did we do for Mother's Day? Um, well, I... I I have learned um, over the years that I should get my wife what she wants. So I've learned that surprising my wife is never really the best strategy. And so this year, my wife asked for underwear. So my wife got underwear. And it's nice. really good underwear. Um, I don't get kickbacks here, but it's Tommy John underwear. And apparently, it's amazing. I've never worn let's talk more. Let's talk more about Katie's underpants. Yeah. So she's going to love that we talked about this. It's the end of the stem cell conversation. So... <laughs> Wait, I want to ask, uh, my- I, I want to ask one more question. So oh, we please. we we all spend a lot of time in the car, and I want to know, Jorge, what do you listen to that keeps you busy in the car? I so the only podcast that I have listened completely was Doctor Death. <laughs> oh yeah. Besides that, yeah. besides that, I'm a I'm a I'm a rookie musician. Let's put it that way. So um, I'm I'm the I'm a cover expert. So, for example, I was uh, listening to Journey's uh, Separate Ways now. So, I listen to all mm-hmm. the covers from everybody. Uh, <laughs> and that, I love music. So, just, that's, that keeps me entertained. And I'm, I seem like a, like a psycho in a car. <laughs> but I can, this I, I need can get to hear. I can get all my energies up before I start clinic and or, or uh, OR. Or the operating room, yeah. I love it. Good answer. Good answer. Well, thank you, Jorge, for coming on. I, this was uh, uh, an awesome conversation. I would imagine this is probably not the last stem cell talk we'll have. So I'm sure Jorge will be back. Hopefully he wants to come back. And uh, otherwise, uh, Julie, anything else you want to add? No, that was lovely. Dr. Jorge Chala, please come back one million times. All right. Thank you both uh, very much. I really enjoy this. We we do this regardless of uh, somebody recording us. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was the point of the podcast, to be honest. So, yes, you're right. So, still asking, Julie. What the hell? The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. What the Health Podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.